uh, one of my favorite things to do at this time of year is to go out and take long walks in the woods. This is the perfect time of year. It's kind of gray and a little damp and cool. And, uh, and there's so many hundreds of miles of great trails in Tallahassee. I love to go exploring them. Uh, and back in England, when I would go walking in the woods, I would often stray from the path and strike off and go exploring on my own. Uh, and over there, it was completely safe. Uh, and then I moved to Florida, and I tried to do that here, and I quickly learned that you can't do that. Uh, if you leave the path, pretty soon you're hopelessly tangled up in thorns and vines, you're sinking in stinky mud, you're eaten by mosquitoes, attacked by poison ivy, stung by black widow spiders, and you're invading the nest of an alligator. So in Florida, when you're hiking in the woods, you stick to the path. Um, and I've learned to do that. But I've also noticed, as I've done lots of woodwalking, that the paths change over time. They're not static. If you visit the same woods again and again, you notice that the paths sort of move around and migrate. Um, because in most places, nobody plans out where those paths in the woods are going to go. It's just a kind of corporate decision made by hundreds of hikers who went before you. Their feet walking the same trail over and over have created the path, and their feet can recreate it. So you notice that, for example, when a tree falls after a storm and it blocks the path, pretty soon the path will migrate around that fallen tree. And within a few weeks, the undergrowth is going to return to the part of the path that's no longer being used, and until you, can, you can't tell there ever was a path there at all. So I want to think about that image as it comes to us uh, today, our hearts and our minds, because I believe that we also have those kinds of paths within us that have been long established by many small journeys. And so that what we think of now as free choices are in fact more often than not habits that follow the course of those well-trodden paths. And some habits are so entrenched in us that they have become addictions. The walls of the path are like 10 feet of solid rock on each side, and we could not go a different way now even if we wanted to. And I think this is the situation Paul speaks into in Romans chapter 6, when he says that we were all once slaves to sin. But now he calls us to stop presenting our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead to present ourselves to God. So we're looking at Romans 6 today. We're picking up on our series that we started last year. You can grab a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 6. I'll just give us a quick recap on what we uh, looked at last year in the first five chapters. Paul spends the first five chapters uh, of Romans laying out the wonderful news of the gospel. And the good news is that because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can be saved. Everyone can be saved, not only the Jews, but the Gentiles too. Every human soul can now be redeemed by the blood of Christ, forgiven every sin, justified and counted as righteous in God's sight, and fully reconciled to our Heavenly Father as his beloved children. And it's good news that has nothing at all to do with our own efforts to be good, and it has everything to do with God's own goodness and grace in rescuing us. And if we've really understood Paul, then we come to this part of uh, Romans in about chapter 6, and we start to think, well, surely then I can do anything I want. If it's really true that it all depends on God and not on me, then can't I just keep sinning if I want to? So that is the question that Paul turns to in chapter 6. In verse 1, he asks, why not continue to sin that grace may abound? 
And then he repeats the question almost exactly in verse 15. Should we keep sinning because we are not under law but under grace? And both times he answers his own question with a resounding no. Uh, so why is the answer no? That's what I want to look at today. And Paul gives us two reasons in the second half of chapter 6 why the answer is no. The first reason is that we chose to run for refuge to a new master. And the second is because we've tried that old way before and we found it totally bankrupt. So first, we chose to run for refuge to a new master. If you look at verse 16, Paul's immediate response to his own question is this. Do you not know? that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. All right, so I want to dig into this image and think about what kind of person would present themselves as a slave, right? That's what he says. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, who does that? And the answer to that question is a desperate person. Okay, so in the Roman Empire in the first century, they had a lot of slaves. Slaves were really the engine of the whole economy. They did all the real work. And historians estimate that in the first century, 30 to 40% of the whole population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Um, and most of them had no choice about being slaves. They were either born into slavery or captured in war and forced into slavery. But occasionally, a person could voluntarily enter slavery, and they would do it when they had no other choice. Because they were destitute and starving, and a life of serving a master who would feed and clothe them was better than dying in the streets. So that's the situation that Paul has in mind in verse 16. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you yourself are the slave of a wicked tyrant who abuses your body night and day, who never lets you rest, and who turns your existence into a living hell. But one day you manage to escape with nothing but the rags that you're wearing, and for a few days you try to live on the streets, hiding and eking out an existence by begging and stealing. But you soon realize it's hopeless, you can't live this way, and your old master is on the hunt for you. So you find a nice-looking house with pretty gardens, and you knock on the door, and you offer yourself to the master of that house as his slave. He makes a deal with you. He will shelter you, feed you, and clothe you in exchange for your loyal service, and you gladly agree. And he does his part faithfully. Actually, he's a very good master who gives you honorable work, comfortable quarters, plenty of food, and a day off work every week. But you start doing less and less of the work that he assigns you, and instead, you spend your time working side hustles for the old tyrant you ran away from. I think anyone would view this as an outrage. You have returned evil for good and treachery for trust. And I think that's the emotion Paul was feeling as he wrote verse 16. You presented yourselves to the Father when you felt desperate and vulnerable. You contracted with him to be his servant instead. Do you now turn on him? Now that your belly is full and you feel secure again? Paul says, no, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So do you see here in this chapter that um, we see that in response to God's lavish grace toward us, we have a duty of righteousness. 
There's a response of duty. There is such a thing as Christian duty. In fact, the fact that we are not under law does not make us a lawless people. It's such an important point. Jesus, in the gospel reading, um, throws people into outer darkness. You workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness is not Christianity, even though we are not under law. The fact that we have been saved by grace makes us a righteous people. In verse 19, Paul says that lawlessness was the problem with the old man. He says we were slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So a spirit of anarchy and lawlessness is not a Christian spirit that comes from evil. Instead, the Holy Spirit of God writes God's law on our hearts so that Paul can conclude, now present your members as slaves to righteousness that leads to sanctification. Okay, so that's the first reason. Christians do not continue to embrace sin because we chose to run away from it, to run to refuge to a new master. And we do things his way now. And there's a second reason in this passage. And the second reason is that we tried that old way before, and at the time we found it totally bankrupt. All right, so Paul goes on in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. So I want to get specific here, borrowing from Paul's illustration in verse 13, as I did with the children, where he says, do not present the members of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And I want us just to pause and examine our hearts and think about ways that we might have done that. We used our eyes to gaze on the objects of our desire and lust, to count our possessions, to look disdainfully down on our neighbors, and to stare vainly in the mirror. We used our ears to devour gossip, to listen eagerly for news of our rival's disgrace, and to feed our minds on comforting lies that confirmed our own biases. We used our mouths to boast, to condemn others, to wound with spiteful words, to express our rage, and also to devour the best and largest portions we could grab for ourselves, to eat and drink away boredom and guilt and to self-medicate. We used our hands to strike, to push, to grab, to vent our anger with weapons and at the computer keyboard and to stoke division. And we used our feet to take us to the places where we ourselves would be fed and comforted, honored and rewarded, and to run away from any of the places where we might be needed or called upon or asked to do a hard thing. We gave the members of our bodies to sin. We used them as instruments for unrighteousness in these and many other ways. None of us has done all the things I mentioned, but all of us have done some of them. So pick just one of these examples or any other one that applies to you and ask Paul's question about it from verse 21. What fruit was I getting at that time? What reward came from that behavior? And I'm sure the answer is a very foul fruit. We've tried that way before. It loses friends. It makes enemies. It divides families. It ends marriages. It loses jobs. It starts fights. It destroys our own bodies. And it hastens death. So we've all proven for ourselves that the wages of sin is death. And when we remember that old way that we chose, we're ashamed. 
And there's another thing that we found along the way. We found that presenting our bodies to sin was habit-forming. We proved Paul's words that if we present ourselves to anything as a slave, we become the slave of that very thing. It's addictive. The more we did it, the easier it was to do. It made a path through the woods that became a trench, and that trench became a canyon. Lawlessness led to more lawlessness until we could not choose anything else. The heart and mind led the body into the way of sin, and the body learned the way of sin until there was just one narrow path within us of wickedness that led straight inevitably to death. And we could not leave that path by any strength of will, and we had become, just as Paul predicted, slaves to sin. And that is why we ran to Jesus in the first place. Do you not remember? To rescue us from the pit that we had dug for ourselves. And Jesus did rescue us. He reached down into that canyon and he hauled us up out of it. And then he broke the power of sin by his Holy Spirit. So he filled that canyon in with dirt, at least most of the way, so that we now, by his power, have the freedom to choose another path, a different path. He calls us now to give those same members of our bodies to practice the habits of righteousness. Our eyes to look kindly on our children and our parents and friends to notice what they need, and also to seek out the sick that they may be healed, the hungry that they may be fed, the wounded that they may be bound up, and the lost that they may be found. Our ears to fill our minds with truth, with the wisdom and understanding of God, with the thanks and praise of his people, and with the cries of the brokenhearted. Our mouths to be silent and keep their peace and humility, and to take their share with thanksgiving, and when they speak, to speak truth, and to tell the good news of hope and joy in God. Our hands to clean and mend and tidy, to gently lift up the lowest people and touch the untouchable, to carry the ones who cannot walk and give wherever we see need. And our feet to flee from the house of temptation and to walk courageously into the places where our deepest love will be demanded. Our hearts and our minds love this new way, thanks to the Holy Spirit within us. We long to be like this. We see this as beautiful. But it's not easy, is it? It's really hard. The body that we spent so many years training to go one way is very reluctant to change course. It holds on to the old way stubbornly, and it embraces the new way very half-heartedly. So as I close, I want to think about what can we do about that problem? And I really think the first thing is that we have to remember grace. We were saved by grace and we continue to live in it every day. God is so patient and merciful with us, even though we have repaid his trust with treachery. So we continue to live in that grace. And also let's make sure that we pay that grace forward to each other, to those inside the church who still mess up and need our forgiveness, and also to those outside the church. And we remember that they have not been rescued from their sin like we have. They are still stuck in their slavery to sin if they don't know Jesus. Paul says they're actually not capable of choosing anything but sin. That's what he says in this passage. So their continued slavery should not arouse our hatred and anger, but our prayers and compassion. They're still beloved souls in the image of God. So we remember grace, but it's a grace that transforms us into the new way, and it's not a cheap grace. It patiently teaches us the new way, and it waits for us to learn it. But in the end, it will not tolerate 
any preference in us for the old way. And we remember as we read Paul that Christians must be servants of righteousness. We must be growing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the marks of the new life. And when we see people who are still serving unrighteousness, they are not living as Christians. Whoever it is they pray to, whatever prayer they said at a camp in their teens, Paul says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus will say in the end, I never knew you. So as a potent example of how important this is, uh, two weeks ago at the Capitol riots, one of the leaders was the self-styled Q shaman. Uh, his real name was Jake Angeli, the guy with the big horns. Um, and what he did, I don't know if you saw this video, he gathered the fellow insurrectionists on the Senate floor and he led them in a prayer of thanksgiving for their success to God the Father in Jesus' name, showing that they believed that their cause was righteous. But does that make his actions Christian? Of course it doesn't. <clears throat> because what have lies and conspiracies to do with the truth? What has violence to do with the Prince of Peace? Or rage to do with gentleness? Or boasting to do with love? The actions of that capital mob two weeks ago had nothing to do with Jesus. It was lawlessness, hatred, and lies. The very thing Jesus died to defeat but the world saw his name and his cross associated with evil, and that was a great blasphemy. So this is why Paul's words in Romans are so vital, so important, why we must resolve to learn God's new way of righteousness. Because we as his children are alone in the world of having a choice not to sin. We alone have been freed by the power of the Spirit. So who's going to make that choice if we will not? Who will show the world God's better way of love if we do not? And we do it through a million tiny choices made one by one, hundreds every day. Feet that are planted in the forest of our hearts and minds that gradually carve out a new path and leave the old path derelict and overgrown. And just as sin got easier and easier over time, so too does righteousness. It starts off feeling very unnatural, very hard, but as the steps fall and the path forms, it gets easier and easier. And it too can turn into a trench and then into a canyon until we feel compelled toward love and joy and peace every time as the only way we can respond. And then we can properly be called slaves of righteousness, a truly blessed slavery a long obedience in the same direction. And having passed a thousand small tests, we're finally ready to serve God mightily and face the great tests. So we see that the training for the great missions of God happens in our homes, at the grocery store, in our bedrooms, and behind the steering wheel. So learn your own ways. What old path are you still walking down today? Where are your trigger points? What comment that's made by your children will routinely send you into a rage? Station a guard at that point in the path and redirect you into patience. Or what situation will start you drinking? And how will it progress until you're out of control and behaving shamefully? 
Station a guard at that juncture in the path and nip it in the bud before it begins. Clear your house of those dangerous drinks. Stay away from that toxic bar. Or what series of clicks online will, will have you up late into the night, reading posts and growing more and more outraged? Or what series of clicks online will lead you back into the territory of pornographic images? Station a guard in the path and stop it happening. Shut down your devices at 10 p.m., give yourself accountability, drag yourself up in the morning to pray instead. Discipline your body, make it your slave, train it to live the new way. In these and a thousand other ways, we stop ourselves presenting our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, and we begin presenting ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And in these millions of small but consistent choices, we slowly expunge the toxic legacy of those old paths that lead to death, and we carve out new ones that lead toward life and peace, growing more and more useful to the kingdom of God and more and more bright in this evil world. Amen.